It's an epidemic. This is a very serious problem. And it's something that we often think, oh, that's between them. We're going to look the other way. Somebody else will take care of it. it. This is awkward and cringy. Don't really want to go down that path. Or you're not sure what you can do or how you can help. Domestic abuse, violence, coercive control. Those are things that are happening in our society, one in three people. So if it isn't you, it's definitely someone you know and someone close to you more than likely. There are people who are really making a difference, but they also say they want to be put out of work. And I think we all want that. We all want this to get better, not to keep visiting the next generation and the next generation. We need to stop it happening in the first place. And in order to do that, we need to have conversations, real conversations, real talk. Now, Andrea Silverstone and Carrie McManus are with me on the show today, and they are from an organization called Sages in Calgary. This organization has workshops called Real Talk, and they'll actually help you learn to have those conversations, to have those real conversations that are going to make a difference in someone's lives. They also have a screening questionnaire that you can do online if you're not sure if you're in an abusive situation. And for many people, that's confusing. Like, wouldn't I know if I'm being abused? He's not hitting me. It's not physical. There are so many other forms of abuse. And what is very damaging about the abuse that you are exposed to where you think you're losing your mind and you think that you have to be hyper vigilant. That's abuse. So we're going to be talking more about this and the programs they offer. And if you would like to be able to help Sages, they are looking for people to volunteer. You can donate. There are, there are ways to support these organizations that help make changes in our communities and in our world. I'm really pleased to have these ladies with me today. Let's get into our conversation with them now. Welcome, Sages ladies. Carrie, Andrea, thank you so much for being with me today. It is very encouraging as someone who's been through abuse and coming out the other side, trying to build more awareness to know that there are people like you who are doing what you do to bring awareness and to support people whether they are just in the process of discovering the abuse that they're in. And we're going to get into that because that is hard to explain to a lot of people, whether they're in the middle of it or coming out the other side. So welcome, ladies. Let's start with you, Andrea. And please tell us more about yourself, your why, what brought you to say, Jess? Oh, that's a great question. So my name is Andrea Silverstone, and um, I... I'm the CEO of Sages, and um, I think that for me, the question is actually what brought me to this work, the work of working with those who, um, as I identified it when I began, experienced domestic abuse, and now I would say that those who experience course of control. And so um, I think that course of control is pervasive and prevalent in society. I think it's at epidemic levels. I think it always has been. I think that as a society, we're getting better at naming it. And I think we're also getting better at naming it 
in more than just domestic violence arenas, but other arenas that exist as well, like sexual violence and high coercion groups and that sort of thing. And so for me, the why of Sages is I believe that everyone deserves to have peaceful, healthy, respectful relationships. And I want to be a part of this, you know, action to make that happen. Love that. And yeah, we're going to dig into more on, on coercive control. There's a, more attention being given to it in the public eye, I feel, with the legal system starting to make changes as well. So it's very encouraging that this is being recognized and people realize like, it, and recognize what they may be living and why their mental health and their, their physical health and everything is, is suffering from this. Carrie, you're up next. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for having us. Uh, I'm Carrie. I'm the uh, Director of Innovation and Programs with SageS. And my why is a why of, uh, I think, both an introspection and an internal journey of understanding our stories and our experiences and going through that process myself and wanting to be able to support other people going through that process, whatever that might look like for them and whatever those uh journeys and experiences are, as well as a, a process of community and um, an observation and seeing the, the need and the opportunity for shifting the common narrative that we have around domestic abuse and around course of control and around uh, who experiences that and how they experience that and what's available, and really wanting to be able to be a part of both supporting those individuals who are being impacted, whether that's somebody who is using violence, somebody who's experiencing violence or, or the people in the community around them, uh, as well as the sector that we're in and the work that we do as service providers and looking at how do we uh, think about and, and do this work differently in this changing world and, and have a goal for actually putting ourselves out of a job. My my why often comes down to, I'd love to retire to the Scottish countryside and, and uh, you know, live in, in the rain and the fog. And uh, in order to be able to do that, we have to figure out a way to make domestic abuse not the issue that it is. And I, I feel committed to that journey and eager to move to a place with great... Uh, food and, and scotch. Well, let's work really hard to make that happen, Carrie. <laughs> I think we all have, we have, even if we're doing this just to get you to Scotland, it's still going to be worth it. But yeah, I, I love your passion, both of you. Can you please jump right in to describing abuse that people don't necessarily recognize? Physical for generations has been recognized as to, to, majority of the public, uh, and depending on culture as well, as abuse or violence, whether it's in a, a intimate partner relationship, a family, workplace, whatever, that it's that's violence. But there is so much more to this that is violent. It is destructive. It is abuse. And trying to explain to someone who's in it, yes, that is abuse. That's hard enough. And then the community around them that's going, if they don't think it's abuse, then why would we even consider that it's abuse? And that's a challenge. But uh, I found that when I shared some little scenarios, when I was keynote speaker at a fundraiser recently, that's when it started to 
hit home because people could then relate to a situation. So do you find that that's sometimes what takes it to um, a revelation for someone, whether they're in it or wanting to support someone is to actually say, okay, how would you feel if this happened to you? Or how do you, what do you find with your programming and what's the best approach? I think, you know, I'll begin and then I'll let sort of Carrie jump in and talk about some of the analogies that we use. And I think that for um, me, what's most important is starting with, I think maybe a bit of education. And I think that the first piece of education is, is that for us, we talk about domestic abuse in terms of coercive control. And when we say coercive control, what we mean is a pattern of behavior that makes an individual lose their personal agency or their ability to make decisions in their own best interest. Right. And so why do people make decisions against their own best interest? Because they're afraid of the ramifications of making that decision. And so the reason that we probably don't use examples so much is because for each person, right, the thing that's being used to perpetrate the course of control is usually something that's very sacred to them, very important to them, but could be different for every individual. Mm-hmm. And so for us, we ask questions more like, are you afraid that if you don't do what this person wants you to do, that something bad is going to happen? And now you have made a different decision as a result of it. Ooh, that's powerful. And that's very specific that they can apply to their own personal situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We often talk about coercive control being uh, the experience of coercive control being sort of like a Jenga tower, right? And that you never really know when the next block is going to cause things to fall. And that fall could look like any number of things. And I think that, you know, using analogies like that allow clients or allow the people that we're working with, whoever and whatever their experience might be, to be able to root themselves within that without the judgment of saying, well, if I'm not experiencing exactly this thing, or if this didn't exactly happen to me, then it's not valid or it's not important. Mm-hmm. I remember when we first started talking about course of control, I uh, heard about it at a conference and I remember calling Andrea and saying, oh my God, this is it. This is the thing that we've been missing. This is the thing that makes the difference for all of those clients who call and I answer the phone and they say, I'm not experiencing abuse, but... And then they would go on to tell me these stories of feeling like they had no personal agency, feeling like they were in this pattern where everything that they did was wrong and that they never knew what was sort of happening. And each one was different and each one was unique. And the things that caused, you know, escalations and violence or abuse were different. And that what that escalation looked like and felt like were different. But this underlying feeling was the same. And coercive control give us the language to be able to say, we see you and we hear you and it's really valid and it's really important. And you're not going to find this on a list of red flags. You know, for years, our sector used to talk about, here are the red flags, here are the things to consider if your partner does X, Y, and Z. And I often, you know, talk about a, a friend who got new appliances and their smart appliances And I was at her house one day and her partner came home from work and he said, you know, oh, I like noticed that the clothes sat in the dryer for 20 minutes today. And she said, 
yeah, because Carrie and I were doing something and it was this friendly banter back and forth. And it was mostly about the two of them figuring out that this was so fun that they could look at these appliances and see what was happening and then have these conversations. There was no fear. There was no underlying pattern of feeling like this person is judging me or there's ramifications for this or I'm being monitored. But in some relationships, that could be a totally different experience. Having a smart appliance that says, why were you standing with the fridge open for 20 minutes or 10 minutes or five minutes could have a totally different feeling for somebody. And so when we talk about giving examples, that's a great example of something that for one person could feel totally different than for somebody else. And when we when we say, here's what we're looking for, we give this false sense of, if these things aren't happening, I'm okay. Or these things aren't happening and I actually feel like I'm not okay, but apparently that's not valid and it's not important and it's not something that I get to ask for help or support around. And I think that that's really the message that's been perpetuated around the violence there. We've compared, I stayed in a situation for over 30 years because, well, I knew of far more extreme cases. I wasn't aware that if it wasn't always physical, then it still could be abuse. And so Mm -hmm. you're right, Carrie, that it's so um, individual, the experience. Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned, Andrea, the different values that you have is, is different. And so what means something to you and hurts you and you're on eggshells about might not have affected somebody else the same way because it wasn't, it wasn't created around fear. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one of the questions that you asked also is, is I think part of the conversation needs to be for those who are experiencing it to be able to know that um, abuse is more than just a broken bone or a black eye. But I also think that um, friends and family need to know that abuse is more than a, you know, black eye and broken bone. Because one of the things that I think also limits people from being able to access help is that when they say something like, oh my God, he got on my case because I was 20, you know, the uh, items were in the dryer for 20 minutes. Oh, so what? Big deal. Bob was, you know, not really like meaning it without understanding that that could be a mechanism of coercive control. Mm -hmm. And so part of, you know, what we need to also help people to recognize is we need to change the discourse. Um, And then the other thing is, is that so often in society, people just ask, why didn't they leave? Right? Why didn't they just leave the abusive situation? And the, and this is exactly why they didn't leave. People don't ask in the same way, why, why individuals don't leave cults. They understand that there's a mechanism of brainwashing that happens and that cult members eventually start to lose their capacity to make decisions in their own best interest because they've been indoctrinated and brainwashed. Domestic abuse is just a cult of one. It's no different. And so we need to stop talking about things as broken bones and black eyes because we're not actually helping anyone, especially because we know that most abuse doesn't include physical abuse. And I have also heard how many cases, and and this is more of a statistical uh, piece of information, many cases of domestic abuse may not include physical, but physical usually always includes also that coercive control. There's other abuses around the physical. And if there hasn't been physical to a point, at some point there very likely could be. And in some cases, it's the only incident and it's fatal. Yeah. 
Yeah, what we know about coercive control and the way that we talk about it at SAGES is we don't actually talk about different types of abuse. We talk about different mechanisms of abuse. Mm -hmm. And really when we're looking at it and we're thinking about it, most of that falls under coercive control. I think when we talk about types of abuse, we say, are you experiencing physical or financial or sexual? We imply that these are separate incidents and things that don't overlap or touch onto other things. And we know that that's not true, right? We know that an experience of, um, of physical violence often includes emotional uh, components to it, might include other like sexual components and that sort of thing. And so when we talk about it ourselves, we talk about these sort of different tactics that are used within this story of coercive control. And, you know, one of the things that we know about coercive control is that physical, actual physical abuse may not uh, often take place, but the threat of that is can be as damaging, if not more, because there's the knowledge that that could take place. Mm-hmm. And so it actually means that you could get somebody to do something um, at the threat that they might be harmed without ever actually having to harm them, right? And and so if you look at things like our, our court system, our family law system, all of these things need to catch up to the fact that abuse is not the physical push it's the threat that the physical push could happen and the fact that I'm going to change my actions and behaviors based off of that. And again, it's encouraging to know that the legal definition now includes threats and includes dating situations any and those types of other relationships. You know, it's the work that's being done by yourselves as well is getting that information to the public, whether it's someone who's in a situation or the family and village that needs their support or just the general public, because we can do so much by understanding more. And I think many try and avoid it. It's like, um, you know, that's between them. That's not our business. Uh, if we look, you know, somebody else will look after it, or there's some fear because they don't know where to point them to, to get the help they need, or they are afraid of for their own safety. Yeah. So what, one of the things that we know is that we're mostly so where people go when they experience abuses to friends, family, informal supporters, and that exactly what you said, all of those barriers stand in the way of informal supporters being able to really step into that request from the individual who's experiencing abuse or sometimes using abuse. And so we actually have developed a program, um, an initiative called Real Talk, uh, which teaches everybody how to recognize domestic violence, empathize, ask the right questions and listen. And there's a toolkit and there's webinars or we'll even come to like anywhere that a group of people have, you know, gathered, we'll come and we'll, you know, talk about domestic abuse and course of control. Because we really think that we're not the solution to this issue. We think that a a society that is better equipped to be able to support individuals is really the answer to this issue. I love that. And we also we also think that, you know, just to pick up on that that um, sort of conversation around real talk, the reason it's called real is because real talk is because it's about having real conversations. It's not about having all of the answers. The goal, similar to how we don't give clients or people who are experiencing abuse a list of red flags, we don't give informal supporters a list of, here's the script, 
here's the thing that you say. If you say exactly this, everything will turn out great. We talk to them about having real conversations. We talk to them about showing up in vulnerability, their own and the person that they're engaged with. And we talk to them about what it means to be able to say, I'm here with you. I don't have all of the answers. I don't know all of the solutions, but I'm here with you on this journey. And I think by sort of removing that idea that an informal supporter has to know exactly what the answers are, the exact right thing to say, exactly who the supports and services are, we allow them to be able to recognize that they have an incredible amount of power and opportunity to be in that caring relationship and support that person without having to be an expert in domestic abuse. I'm so happy that you all of that. I agree with all of that. That's amazing. And thank you for mentioning your program. Cause that was my next question. So we we've, yes, there's a need, there's a need. Okay. Well, you've created something to help with that. And um, it's just one of the things that Sages does. So can you tell us more about how you support people? Sure. So Sages, um, we believe that we actually have to support people on a few different levels. And one of them is what we call our intervention work. And that is for people that have experienced um, domestic abuse or those that live at the intersection of domestic abuse and uh, sex work or sexual exploitation. And we offer individual supports for them as well as group supports. Um, the individual supports and group supports are provided by peers. So those who have experienced domestic abuse themselves or sexual exploitation themselves, we train them to be volunteers, we support them as volunteers, and then they come back into our agency and they run groups and provide individual support. Um, and we do that actually across the province of Alberta. Uh, we are also the social service response arm of Claire's Law. So Claire's Law is um, a piece of legislation here in Alberta that um, allows those who have been who have a suspicion that the person that they're in a relationship with might have a history of domestic abuse, they can make a request to know that information. And at the same time, they make a request to know that information. They can also um, request referrals to supports and services and we're the help with the supports and services side. Because we say, if you're already asking if there's a history of domestic abuse, then that means your spidey senses are going off and you probably need supports and services at that point. Um, so that's part of our prevention work, the other sort our intervention work. The other thing that we do is we recognize that friends and family who do take disclosures experience their own, you know, trauma from hearing those stories. And so we also offer supports to friends and family to both deal with um, hearing the stories, as well as the I'm going to court tomorrow with my sister, what do I do? I don't know what to listen to or how to best support her. So we do that as well. Um, but we also believe that we can't just be helping people after the incident mm -hmm. has happened, that we have to be upstream of mm -hmm. the work as well. And so towards that end, we are the backbone agency for an initiative across the province of Alberta that has many, many organizations, like over three or 400 of them involved, working together to eradicate domestic and sexual violence. Um, and so we do that. We also offer our Real Talk program. Um, and uh, and so those are some of the things that we do. And then the last is we can't keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting the same result. And so we have a whole department of which Carrie is uh, the head of dedicated to innovation, figuring out better and different ways to do this so that, you know, Carrie can go to Scotland and I can come <laughs> and visit and drink scotch. <laughs> One of the things that we um, 
uh, do within the innovation department is we really look at what's happening, what's changing um, across law policy um, uh, within the, the the province and the uh, country. And then <clears throat> what are we hearing from clients? What are we hearing from stakeholders? And so an example of something that we've launched based off of that is our domestic abuse screening, which is something that came out of conversations with lawyers, uh, family law lawyers who said, you know, we need a better way to be able to screen and support people who are in, in mediation um, or in going through uh, family the family law system to be able to understand if they're experiencing domestic abuse. And there's lots of different ways that exist right now to do that. And most of them involve lawyers spending a lot of time doing a lot of training to try to become experts in it. Um, but never really, I would say, and uh, to all my lawyer friends, I apologize for this, never really hitting the mark because uh, it's not what they do. And so in consultation with uh, a lawyer that we work closely with, we've created a screening where we can help to support lawyers to get that information, uh, to be able to have that knowledge moving forward about the experiences of domestic abuse. Are they prevalent? How do they take that into consideration when they're doing mediation or arbitration? And how does that screening happen by actually the right people to be doing it, which I think is our staff and our clinical team, because they do it every day. They talk to clients every day. They understand the nuance of course of control and what makes something course of control and what makes something high conflict because we know high conflict exists within uh, within divorce and family law matters. And so through that uh, consultation and that process, we've developed a screening process where we will work directly with somebody to be able to say, tell us these details, tell us what's going on. It's a short, you know, uh, survey that you can do probably in 15 or 20 minutes online that our staff will then review and say, we think based off of this that we want to have a follow-up conversation with you because there's some there's some things that make us think that there might be course of control here. And then in that follow-up conversation, we're able to connect directly with that person. And if they are experiencing course of control and domestic abuse, to be able to say to them, what help and support do you need? What help and support do you have? How can we support? How can we be part of this and make sure that you're safe um, and make sure that you're getting the things you need, whether they're the person using violence or the person experiencing. And so through that screening, we're seeing this ability to work again, in this innovative and different kind of way within our sector and with different stakeholders, but still to the end of making sure that the person, the people who are impacted by domestic abuse are getting the things that they need and having this community of, and, uh, of support and care around them. Incredible, incredible. Uh, you know, you've really, you've, you've created things to help people, whatever space they might be. And I think it's, it's not, done without some very concentrated intention and some, you know, using, for example, peer support. Incredible. Because if you can be supported by somebody who can, who's been in, in this type of situation, everybody's is unique, but they've experienced it, the support and the understanding. And it would, I, in my, if it was me, I would quicker, more quickly reach that trust level being able to share what I've done and, and it, the whole process would just um, be more effective and efficient because you don't have to explain and hope the person understands. 
uh, how this makes you feel and, and the rest. And you've, you mentioned a couple times about the users of coercive control. Is that also um, a support that you offer in information? What, how do you, how do you serve that area? Like it's even hard to talk to because uh, talk about, because it's like, we just want to hate them, but they're people. And we need to be able to help. And if we're going to go up river and upstream and quit pulling people just out of the bottom, we have to address that side of it. There's, it's, there's generational, there's, there's so much to it. I'm not the expert on this. You guys are, that's why you're here. So please (laughs) enlighten us. Well, and I think we know that people who use abuse, and we use that language really, really purposefully, um, of of not talking about perpetrators, but people who use abuse, um, are complex humans, the same as all of us are. And so by using that language, we recognize the complexity of of people and their experiences and what leads people to the places that they're in and what supports we need moving out of that. And so one of the things that we often talk about is that our prevention work really is is partially about preventing violence, but it's also about preventing opportunities where people, that's the that's the only way that they can see, the only path that they can see to get their needs met or to have the this, this experience that they're needing, right? And so I think our prevention work does a lot of work in that area. There's not a lot, unfortunately, uh, currently available for people who are using abuse. It's something that we, have not done in the past. We're continuing to look at how do we do that better and how do we create those opportunities and not have a system where we ever have to turn someone away. And really focusing on, again, uh, as Andrea mentioned, most people are gonna talk to their friends and family first, and we know that. And so how do we work with those friends and family of people who are using abuse? Mm -hmm. Because we know that they are there. We know that they exist. People don't live in an island. They're not all on their own. And so how do we connect with those friends and family and say, how are you supporting somebody? How are you holding them accountable, but also allowing them to see their opportunities for growth and vulnerability and their their needs and different ways of having their needs met than by using coercive and, and controlling behaviors. And wow. we also work with partner agencies who do offer programs okay. to those who are using abuse. And um, some of them are focused on men who are using abuse. Some are focused on men's mental health. Some are focused and are called perpetrator programs um, that are non-gendered. Um, but I think for us, the really important thing is to start from the place which which is where you started, which is they're human beings. Most people who use violence don't want to. Um, and how do they want healthy, peaceful, respectful, connected relationships like everybody else does. Um, and so how can we help everybody to get to that point? I am really intrigued with the approach and to talk to their families, to talk to their support systems. I think like that's brilliant and very innovative, if I might say so, <laughs> uh, Carrie. Um, just so encouraging because how painful it would be to be part of somebody's family and you've witnessed their use of abuse. Yeah. And you don't know how to approach that, how to make them accountable, how how to have those conversations. I mean, there was someone... Um, at an event that I just I mentioned I alluded to it earlier when I spoke and a gentleman in the audience turned to one of the organizers and said oh my god I recognize my brother in some of those situations mm-hmm. so the the awareness might be there but now 
it's amazing that there is actually places that people can now turn to learn how to support someone, how to change that. And especially at, at least in my heart, if there's children in those situations, you really are focused on trying to protect them, trying not to visit that on the next generation so that they're it's modeled for them that you use abuse to control people or to get what you want or because you don't know how else what other tools there are and so if we can help especially Mm -hmm. in family situations like that yeah and I think for so long our sort of view of perpetration and perpetrators was uh this you know we sort of ignored them or wrote them off and they're they're you know they're bad people in general. And I think that if you think about this sort of strategy of working with their informal supporters and their friends and their family and understanding the nuance of the human, it allows for this, you know, you're starting from this totally different place because you're starting not from your primary experience of this person is the abuse or the coercion. Your primary experience is all of these other things. And the abuse or coercion you recognize as one piece of the whole of this person, which allows you, I think, to show up in a totally different way um, of, of how you support, of what that support could look like um, and, and how you engage. And so we're really interested to, to you know, step further into this work um, uh, around that and really, really see the, the need for that. Because uh, again, if we're, if we're ever going to, I think, make change in the way that we want to, we have to look at different systems than what we've done before and and you know not engaging with perpetrators or engaging with perpetrators from the perspective of you are a perpetrator of this thing and that makes you bad um it, it hasn't worked and we still continue to see that uh that it's not working and people are not getting the safety that they need or getting the their needs met whatever that is uh, and so we have to approach that in a different kind of way when you and consider also, this, oh, go ahead, Andrea. I just want to say, and we're also not supporting the victim when we do that, because when we create a binary mm-hmm. and we're like, we'll just leave, or he's terrible or she's terrible, they love that person. They mm-hmm. might share children with that person. They might want connection with that person. And so it just alienates the conversation from happening instead of understanding that relationships are nuanced. Life is a nuanced. People are not binary in the way that we might like them to be they're more messy than that and considering there's an epidemic that means if there's an epidemic of victims there's an ep- or for lack of a better word there's a there's an epidemic of users of abuse mm-hmm. so we can't just ignore that portion of the population and hope this goes away so by using these innovative approaches to not only try and help educate them how many have come from situations or or culture or whatever it is that's created their pattern of using abuse that's that's become their norm and Mm -hmm. that's their go-to and so the education and the support and it's just phenomenal that that there are people creating ways to reach them and help them and support them and change the perspective of everyone else around them that yes, this person is doing this for a reason. And instead of how could you do that? It's what has happened to you. You know, mm-hmm. not everything is as uh, is as it appears and everybody has a story. Let's get curious and instead of judging. Mm-hmm. Not that mm-hmm. we're condoning, obviously. We're not condoning no. the use of it. 
I think that it's important to be able to hold accountability and, um, you know, compassion and empathy and uh, understanding at the same time, right? We can hold someone accountable for their actions and understand that within their patterns, their history, their their upbringing, you know, it, mental health, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's the path. It's the path that was available to them. Uh, while still saying, can we, we want to put you on a different path if we can, we want to support you to see that there are other options, but we have to be able to create those other options for people as well. And And I do just want to reiterate that it is important that um, people who use violence and abuse do need to be held accountable for their actions. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's hard when you've experienced abuse to to you know hold them accountable we're easy that's we can do that and even if it's somebody that we've loved or 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 do still love in you know in a way or share children or whatever that might be it's very challenging and but as you get away from it as you heal then you the space for compassion uh grows and um yeah it's 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 hard to have the conversation uh, to be balanced enough that, you know, compassion and accountability, but absolutely. We do need to start with supporting, uh, the people who are being abused. I feel at least that's, that's how I feel now. Um, the real talk that is incredible. I would encourage everyone to check out the website. All the links will be in the show notes as well as additional links and, uh, you know, links for shelters as I share in all the hope and hell episodes. And, <clears throat> I really encourage people to explore this. Let's have these conversations. And if it can be facilitated and, um, you know, uh, supported by having suggest come in and, and help to um, lead this and show you how, give you some tools, how to have these real conversations, then uh, make sure and contact these lovely ladies and invite um, their services to come out to your organization if you know that's where it starts and if you don't know how to start those conversations there's help thank you so much for having us on today dina my pleasure i look forward to having you back again because i want to dig a little bit deeper into some more specific uh, ways that we can offer people tools and and give them something to take with them into a situation because if there's an epidemic uh, I mean, we've heard stats, one in three people are abused. So to visit in you, it's someone you know. So you more than likely have someone in mind, at least one that you would like to be able to support. And it might even be yourself. So um, we're going to be back with even more information and tools for you. Thank you, ladies, for your time today. I really appreciate it. And, and especially for the work that you're doing in our world. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you found that conversation helpful insightful and something that will inspire you to pause and consider that things are not always the way they appear. Everybody has a story. There's things going on in the lives of the people around you that they may be afraid to talk about or share. Real Talk is a workshop that suggests offers that these ladies feel every Canadian, every person should take because 
those opportunities are going to show themselves and you will start to see where you could have a conversation. So why not feel empowered to have that and learn how to have those tough conversations to even open them up and help people who are in these unsafe situations. We really appreciate you being with us today. If you feel that this would help another person, please feel free to share that. It's so important for us to get the word out and make a difference for people in, in their lives and make our world a safer place for everyone, especially the women and children who are afraid to speak up for themselves. Now, we do also have a survey. Please check that. The link is in the show notes as all the links are in the show notes for uh, the Sages ladies and, and the programs that they offer. And I really, I want to hear how I can help you, what I can do to bring you the people that you want to hear from, answer the questions that, that you have and find out how we can support you better. Now, there's also a women's support group called Hope and Hell that I host through Meetup via Zoom. You can join from wherever you are. It's free. Anybody can join. It's a place, it's a safe place to have some of these tough conversations. And I also welcome you to check the link is also in the show notes for this. If you have a story, if you are a victor over violence and you have a story that you would like to share in order to inspire and help others, please let me know. I have a few ways that I can share that, including on my blogs, as well as a book that I am creating where it's called Hope and Hell. And it's a, it's a place where you can share your story, where people can read and not feel so alone, that we do truly believe them and that we understand. All those links are in the show notes. Please reach out if you want to talk about this, if there is some way that we can help you or you're looking for some resources. Thank you very much for being with me today, for spending this time with me. And hey, keep smiling that beautiful smile because the world really does need your sunshine. It means a lot that you spend this time with us and meet our experts and professionals who can help you through whatever life changes you're facing. Please refer to our terms of service available on our website, lifechangesmag.com. The link is in the show notes. Our disclaimer, Divorce Magazine Canada, Life Changes Magazine and Channel and Divorce Resource Groups are intended to educate and provide quality, credible resource information. The contents should not be used as factual until consultation with the appropriate professionals for any guidance. Divorce Magazine Canada, Life Changes Magazine, and Life Changes Channel, as well as the Divorce Resource Groups, do not constitute endorsements for nor liability for any claims made in the presenting of this information.